On the first episode of our share farming season, we explore the other side to the story of our most popular episode from season one, a conversation with Katie and Hugh Finlay, founders of the Harcourt Organic Farming Co-op. As ageing farmers who saw they had a responsibility to nurture a future generation of land stewards, Katie left us with these memorable words. So to be able to watch our farm be farmed and become more productive by a growing community of passionate young farmers is just amazing. It is, it's just such a gift, and particularly because my dad is still here. He's getting huge amounts of joy out of, um, out of watching that happen as well because that's the gift he gave us. Yeah, so it's really fantastic for him to still be here and see, see it pass on to, the, um, on to the next generation as well. This time around, I have a conversation with young farmers, Sass Allardyce, one half of Gung Ho Growers, and micro-dairy farmer Tess Sellers, both members of the Harcourt Organic Farming Co-op. With little capital, Sass and Tess knew they had to think outside the square when it came to accessing land and equipment. We hear how they made it work for them, legally and financially, and the hard work, strong values and sense of humour that helped them along the way. As property prices skyrocket, creating significant barriers to dynamic young farmers entering the market, and ageing farmers look for ways to continue living on productive, regeneratively managed land, on this season of Farming Together, our host Amanda Scott explores the ins and outs of a collaborative and creative solution that's quickly gaining momentum. Share farming on this season of Farming Together. So I'm Sass Allardyce, I'm one half of Gung Ho Growers. So we've been growing organic veggies here on Katie and Hughes land, which is also Judge Around Country for nearly seven years or six and a bit years. Yeah, we started really with not much. We started with about $200 each to invest in our business. So we've really built the business literally row by row by row by hand until we, we now have about an acre and a half, which is in varying stages of um, production. Yeah, and we just we sell our veggies to the local community and we're another one part of the Half Court Organic Farming Co-op. Fantastic. Oh, I look forward to um, finding out more about your progress along the way. I didn't realise you'd been at it for seven years. Mm. And $200 to start. That's great. (laughs) And Tess, what about you? So I'm Tess Seller and I run the dairy up at the co-op here, which is Seller Farmhouse Creamery. And I sort of slowly came back into farming. I grew up in northeast Victoria via Melbourne and got an internship at a uh, goat dairy up here as I knew I wanted to get into dairy. And so from there... I've sort of formed what my business plan was and how, what I wanted it to look like. And then through just the local community, I met Katie and Hugh and heard that they were interested in having other people farm on their land. And that was sort of the, the missing key that I was needing to actually take the big jump and start my business. So that conversation happened probably four and a bit years ago. And then I moved my first cow here three years ago. And that's when the co-op founded Uh, we were hoping to be up and running and selling milk pretty quickly after that but it took 18 months for us to build the factory and be up and selling we've been licensed and running for 18 months now and we just run a small herd of i'm currently only milking six cows a mixed herd of jerseys and dairy shorthorns and we 
have a mobile milking parlour, which was the first licensed one in the country, which is pretty exciting. So it moves around the paddock with the cows. And then we bring all the milk back up to the factory here that we've built and we bottle it into milk and I make yogurt once a week. And then most sold through a subscription-based system and the rest is sold at the farmer's market, but it pretty much all goes just directly to Castlemaine. The demand is pretty high for local milk, which is great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Are you, are you, do you sell in a similar way, Sass? Yeah, we also have a subscription model for our veggies. So we sort of split our sales in three different arms. Um, so we've got the, the veggie boxes, which are weekly boxes that people subscribe to on a seasonal basis. We sell to local restaurants and cafes as well. And we also do the weekly farmer's market. But like Tessa, our, our veggies don't really go beyond Castlemaine because there's such a big demand for good quality organic produce locally. Yeah, that's brilliant to hear. So I'm imagining, Sess, you were probably first the gung-ho growers were one of the first that were involved in the early days and this meeting with Katie and Hugh tell us a little bit about how that evolved it would have been about seven and a bit years ago Mel my business partner and I we knew we wanted to grow food together and we started the journey of looking for land to lease to start to grow on and Katie and Hugh were actually the first people that we approached about um, whether or not they'd, they'd be willing to have us on their land. And that I already had a good working relationship with Katie through my previous job. And so we knew each other and it was sort of a known quantity. But they at that point had just come out of 13 years of drought and then floods. <laughs> and they, I think at that point, couldn't quite conceive of, of what that would look like, I think particularly in terms of sharing a water, the water resource. So initially they said no. And so Mel and I went off and we kept looking for land and there was no shortage of people willing to offer us land around here. But unfortunately, Castlemaine's known for Castlemaine Rock, which is a, a lolly, but it's also what the soil is like. <laughs> so places where you actually can grow are very few and far between and a half court is really it in this shire. So plenty of people offered us land, but it either didn't have soil, didn't have access, had no infrastructure, had no water. There was nothing that was really going to suit our $200 budget <laughs> in terms of getting started. But after about 12 months of looking and, I guess, honing exactly what we were looking for and, and what needed and what we weren't really to compromise on, Katie and Hugh by that time had sort of thought a bit more about it and saw that we were really serious about wanting to grow food and so we had another conversation and and at that point they were willing to let us lease some land so yeah initially it started with a, a labor exchange lease which was amazing so instead of paying money to them we gave our lease in labor exchange and over the years that kind of evolved as we got busier and and it made more sense to pay money for a lease than to to spend our time doing a labor exchange and yeah i think we were here for about three years before katie and hugh decided that they no longer wanted to run their orchard actually doing the grunt work of running the orchard and that was kind of a scary moment for us because the options on the table were pretty dire so they they weren't producing on this land we're either going to need to mow in their orchard because they can't have a an unmanaged orchard in this region which is a fruit growing region because of the pests and disease issues that would create for our neighbours so either mowing in the orchard, selling the land or finding some other kind of creative alternative and that's sort of where the co-op was born from and finding somebody else to run the orchard for them as their own business. Wow, what a, what a journey in just a few years. 
Mm. Um, it must have been quite kind of you just feel like you've got something up and running and then you're faced with the potential of having to pick up and start somewhere else. And I think that's, a, that's something that I hear a lot of people who are looking into things like share farming and leasing. They, they are concerned about, you know, what if I build this business on this land and then mm. the owner sells or have you heard about any other people going through situation where they've had to move on or have you negotiated some kind of arrangement with you and Katie in regards to that? Yeah, it's definitely a, a challenge and I've definitely heard of other growers who, yeah, have, have been kicked off their land or the arrangement hasn't worked out because they didn't see eye to eye with the owners of the land or something like that. And I think that's where we're lucky here is that Katie and Hugh are really committed to organic and regenerative agriculture. So they want to see the land continue to be productive, whether it's them doing it or whether it's other people. And so they've got that really foundational commitment. But yeah, it's definitely a risk and it's definitely a consideration. I think that at that point when we weren't sure if Katie and Hugh were going to sell their land or not, that was a real lightning bolt moment of, yeah, wow, we've injected a lot of time and energy here. It would be really, you know, we can't take the soil that we've built with us. So, and that's that's what a lot of what the grunt work is for veggie growing is building the soil. But I think now we've got we've got a nine year lease, so a three by three by three. So that gives us a certain degree of uh, certainty and security for the future. But again, nine years isn't really that long in the farming scheme. So yeah, it's a risky take. But if you don't have the capital to buy land, then there's not a lot of options. And Tess, so I've heard SAS, you know, I, I quite like that idea that originally you negotiated that sort of labour exchange arrangement and then you were able to move into a, a paid leasing arrangement. What did it look like for you, Tess, when you first started? When I moved my first animals here, the co-op had begun and so I moved straight into the full lease agreement with contracts and stuff and paying for it. But I guess my model is a bit different in that I had always seen and intended for this to be a bit of a, a startup phase. As Sass said, like I've come to realise the sad reality that you you actually, particularly in this area, can't buy farmland with the money that you can earn off farming that land. <laughs> that equation just mm. doesn't work anymore. And for something like dairy, the startup costs are so high that I I had the money saved to basically look at putting into land or to start the business and whichever I chose to do first would rule out doing the other one for a very long time and being able to start the business on leased land with Katie and Hughes here was such a great opportunity and our intention always has been that eventually we will move the business to a farm where we can live but this is just such an awesome opportunity here because it came with power and so much infrastructure already and just having people around you when you're, when you're in that startup phase is so the idea of having done all that and being on a farm on my own, it would just, just would have been so much harder emotionally, I think. And so the other key part for us is all of our infrastructure is either portable or movable. So the factory is in a 40 foot shipping container and it's certainly not going to be an easy move. It will probably be a shut down everything for three months, but it is movable. And that was really key to us that so much like factory and dairy infrastructure is so expensive and it's completely tied down to land, which means that if it stops being used for that purpose on that land, it's useless infrastructure then. And so the idea is that, that we can move all of it, the, the actual milking parlour and the the factory to another property in the future if we need to, but also 
if for some reason we couldn't or we didn't want to do dairy anymore, we could actually sell the infrastructure mm-hmm. to someone a long way away. It doesn't have to go with the land. Like Sass was saying, you can't take the soil with you. But to be able to have what infrastructure you invest in be able to go with you or at least for you to be able to sell, I think is a really important part of share farming. Unless the, the land that you're actually leasing comes with that infrastructure, like if it's you that's having to do the investment, it's good if you can take it with you. Absolutely, and that forward thinking I think is really important. But one of the questions that I do get asked, and I've written it down here because I've been asked it quite um, often, is that should those fixed in- infrastructure developments like machinery, packing sheds be financed by the land owner? I'm just interested in your, your, your guys' perspective on that. The orchardists who lease that land get the shed. They get all the tractor and all that infrastructure that is needed to run the orchard, but they just pay more for their lease because they're... So it, it makes it much, a much easier business to just come in and leave because you don't have to sell on those that equipment or anything, but it just means that your running costs of paying the leaseholder, I guess are much higher, whereas we're leasing land and, and then paying bills. We're not actually leasing. Although, Matt, that's your leasing infrastructure as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, and that was invested in by Katie and Hugh and, and the Farming Together grant. So that was, yeah, I think there's all sorts of different ways of doing it, but I think for the landholder it's probably not, that's not a lot of incentive to invest in infrastructure if it's not something that's going to be useful to them if an enterprise or a business leaves their land. But that they, like they've had, the orchards had an interesting conversation, I think, around netting of the orchard because it's currently not permanently netted, but it would add so much value to that business if it was permanently netted because the, the harvest would be so much higher. But I think that's been a, do they split it 50-50 between the landholder and the business owner because Katie and Hugh don't, physically get anything out of that anymore but they're the ones who would own it at the end of the day not the lease holders so. yeah look it sounds to me like it's really context specific and and really it's just fundamentally about having like honest and open communication and finding you know a way that's win-win for everyone involved mm. however mm. you can and what about yeah. access to water for you Sas because you said that's really important how have you kind of worked that out I think we've been lucky in the timing of when we started here. So we're on the Colibum water system and there's a water right to the property. So in recent years, they've been doing a lot of works to pipeline rather than have open channels for the water. And so that's sort of, I guess, reduced the amount of loss through the system. But at the same time, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the local orchards have, especially the family run orchards have folded and sold their water leases back into the system. So they haven't been selling any new water rights as far as I'm aware, but that means that the water right to this property has been shored up and we've been able to buy a bit more water to the property. So, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty good for water at the moment. And it depends on the year and the rainfall because, you know, if the rainfall's been low, then we might only get 50% of our allocation. But so far, I think because of the works they've done and because of that factor of the, a lot of the water rights being sold back in, we've been able to have 100% of our allocation the last few years. But, yeah, it's definitely, especially with climate change, it's definitely a tentative thing. But in terms of agriculture in this region, we're, we're very lucky to be able to have that water right because 
it's very limited sort of corridor of properties that, that do have access to that. But as you say as well, that you did a lot of research in terms of looking around to make sure that you chose a site that had the right soil for you, water access and so forth. So I guess spending the time yeah. and doing the homework as well beforehand. Yeah. I'm interested in some of the biggest challenges for both of you in, I guess, getting started in the first place, but also then keeping going and growing and building your business. I mean, I think being on Shared Farm, like it's just that constant balance between the positives and negatives. And I think the positives way far outweigh the negatives. But like being on someone else's land, there's already systems set up and, and things like that this property has, hadn't had livestock on it for 10 years. So there are some elements there that, that make it quite, you know, a lot of the boundary fences weren't in great shape and things like that because it was run as an orchard for the last 10 years. And so when you own a property, the things that you would choose to invest in first and foremost and up front, when you're share farming, you might be looking for more creative solutions. And so I do manage grazing throughout the property and so I have lots of little paddocks set up and finding that balance between obviously I don't want to invest in permanent fences on leased land. That's not something that I would financially choose to do. But there's just, it's a, it's a property that has lots of little pockets of areas and stuff. And then on top of that, I'm working around two cropping businesses of the um, orchard and the market garden. And so, you know, if you were just on your own property and the cows broke out into your veggies, then that's your own thing that you manage. But if it's someone else's enterprise, that's a whole other problem because, you know, that's Is something that, you've got to Has manage. that happened yet? We, there was a loss of a broccoli crop. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting a bit better now. <laughs> but then, you know, the benefit of farming on the same land is that we intentionally put the cows in the green manure crops in three and the market garden at times um, so that they can work them back into the soil and get some extra feed and they graze in the orchard in winter when there's no leaves. And so... I think the property as a whole gets huge benefits out of having the diversity of the different businesses on the same land. We all gain such extra biodiversity just because we have other the other businesses here. In the day-to-day running sometimes can be a bit challenging, I guess. And just negotiating who needs water when and how they need it and who needs access to this. And I mean, the biggest challenge is, I knew we were going to be, and it definitely has confirmed, but working with people is hard work. Yeah. And I think that's why as a society we've moved away from it because it takes, it takes a lot of time and it takes investment and it's not the quick solution. But if you compare it to how long it takes to earn the money to have to do it on your own, it probably is the quick solution. And it's far more rewarding than doing things on your own, but it takes time. Absolutely. And I'm going to come back to that working with people comment because, you know, farming together, that's what we're all about. And we've definitely seen the power of it, but also potentially the the lack of recognition and the the time and effort and energy that goes into building really strong relationships and knowing that you're always going to face challenges. 
but the process of how to navigate and work through those. Now, Tess, you beautifully combined challenges and benefits <laughs> all in that one <laughs> answer. So I'm going to ask, I guess, that's the same thing and, and you, can, you can counteract those challenges with the positives as well. Um, I love the optimistic response. <laughs> Lots, lots of challenges and, and lots of positive outcomes. Yeah, initially for us, because we did start with such a small budget, I think one of the biggest challenges has been getting our business to be a, at a point that it's viable and manageable. I think, you know, initially, like any small business, every single dollar gets reinvested back into the business and, and that's a real challenge, especially as all farmers know when you're trying to make your living off something that is so dependent on many, many, many other factors that are out of your control. So I think that's been a real challenge for us and that's really taken us a number of years to sort of get the enterprise to be at a size and scale that it's, it's manageable and viable. And, but at the same time, I think that, you know, that's also been a positive for us because it meant that any mistakes that we've made have been small mistakes because we have had to build so incrementally. It's not like we invested in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of infrastructure from the outset when we had no idea what we were doing and then, you know, it was the wrong infrastructure or something like that. You know, any of our mistakes have been very small scale and we've been able to learn from that and, and build on it. Other challenges? Yeah, I think definitely, like Tessa mentioned, just the challenges of stepping into an established infrastructure, which is purpose-built for a purpose that isn't your purpose. <laughs> so I guess we've, we've stepped into a property that's been built to run an orchard, but our enterprise is much smaller and has very different needs. So especially in terms of water infrastructure, that can be a real challenge at times, especially because that infrastructure is shared between all the enterprises. So everything that everybody does has an impact on every other enterprise. So that's been a real challenge, negotiating those things and sort of creating understanding between all members that uh, of our needs because we are so stuck in our enterprise it's sometimes hard to see and understand what somebody else is needing in a given moment so yeah I guess just that that interpersonal negotiating stuff around infrastructure can be challenging also just yeah working with people is is hard work it's it takes time it takes patience it, and I think what we've all come to learn over time is that it takes a real commitment to self-reflection and understanding your own shit and how that influences you in a group situation and how to know when it's your shit that's influencing things negatively or and which fights to fight I guess and how, uh, how do how do you put that filter on how do you <laughs> how do you do that as a group you know because I imagine it's all really personal you're all in your own little businesses and then and you know obviously you're part of a bigger group but yeah, how do you know when to step back? How do you know how to navigate that process? Or can you think of an example of a situation where, mm. where you've done that? Getting some sort of training, like we had a little bit of training in nonviolent communication and I th think that's really helped having a foundational kind of framework from which you can, you can come together around and also holistic management planning. So we did a holistic plan for, for the co-op in terms of what our shared goals are and that kind of thing. So being able to articulate some of those things that, act as something to to bring you all back to the center when things do start to get messy and you can go hang on a second we all agreed that these were our shared core values and, and what we're working towards together but i think what we've also learned is that sometimes we can articulate those things but mean really different things at the same time <laughs> so that's been one of our real challenges is that you know we are a group of really passionate like-minded 
enthusiastic and committed people, but even with those shared common values and, you know, drives, we can still interpret those in really different ways in terms of what's our highest priority in any given moment. So that's been a real challenge. How do you kind of have that awareness in those situations? I think it's a work in progress. And I think what I try and remember is just bringing it back to, you know, with any given decision, is this for the greater good of the group and the co-op? And, you know, how important is my little thing within that is is it just a personal objection or that's you know actually holding back group momentum or is this actually really foundational and important to me and I do need to voice this and I think yeah that's a good thing to try and keep in mind is what is best for the group and the co-op and our objectives together. We are a community of people but there's an element that sits alongside that that is we are all businesses. I think it we should to a degree, always put our businesses first because if we don't, they fall over and that's catastrophic. At every meeting when we come together, everyone has an element that they're saying, well, that's not financially viable for my business. So that needs to be heard and needs to be factored in. And when we're all completely different businesses with different financial needs, that can be tricky to navigate. I guess that's why the traditional co-op model is that you all grow the same produce and sell together rather than you all run completely different businesses on the same property. Yeah, that does fascinate me about your model, um, having different stakeholders who are producing different things. But, look, I, I'm, I'm really quite, I'm so amazed and impressed with your awareness of all of these things and your articulation of those. I mean, you can see why you guys as a community work well together that difficulty in balancing um self-interest which has to be a priority as you say for your business success but also that shared interest in terms of we're all working towards a common goal here which is the greater collective good of our farming community here and yeah they can um potentially get in the way of each other sometimes and you have to navigate i listened to a podcast recently that i wish someone had given to me before we'd started and it was a group of market gardeners who were starting a co-op who had run a co-op for 10 years successfully in the states and they said before they even started they the whole group did a full holistic management course and a full non-violent communication course and after they'd done that and worked out their context then they sat down and worked out what they were going to do for their business. We all we tend to do those in the other way that we we <laughs> deal with them when we problems arise, rather than knowing problems will arise and how are we going to deal with them. Uh, totally, and I'm hoping that people who you're saying you you listen to this podcast and you wish you'd heard it before. Well, hopefully, people who are thinking about doing what you guys do get a chance to listen to this podcast <laughs> before they launch in. But because I totally agree with you, like I think. You know, we say we've got to work together, we've got collaboration and we, we kind of think it's easy or, or we'll be right, mate, but actually it's a it's a learnt skill in life that we can build on and develop and um, mm. what a fantastic opportunity to collectively learn this together right at the beginning so that you have the tools to be able yeah. to work through this process as you go along. Not not when it hits the fan, oh, we've got to deal with this now. <laughs> I think the leases were a perfect example of that because mm. I think Katie talked about in her interview about that it was the first really tricky step because it was putting things down on paper and making a legal framework. And part of what made that so such a bad process was that we were all having to think about worst-case scenarios. So 
if Katie and Hugh turn out to not be the people we thought they were, or if something happens, then how do we respond? Because the way things currently were, everything was rosy and we all got along and it was happy. So why would we have this issue? But it was about predicting how bad things could, could get and how would we deal with them, which is not, not necessarily a nice place to go and we often avoid putting ourselves there. No, absolutely. And I've even, I even heard one of the other farmers that I've interviewed talk about in terms of they were succession planning with their family and it's about, well, when it comes from a lawyer or an accountant, that person is representing that client. Mm. And so it can present this document or this plan in the context of thinking about their client when actually potentially what would be beneficial as coming together and shaping something up from the position of all the stakeholders involved and that be the starting point. I don't know, that's just, I found that really interesting when when they said that they were able to find this professional who was able to do exactly that, talk to each stakeholder and collectively develop something to start with that represented each of those stakeholders' wants and needs. Mm, Yeah. Because I imagine when you get this legal document in front of you, automatically it's like, okay, well, um, you know, where are the ca- are the catches in here? You know, what does this mean for me? And that might not be yeah. the intention at all. But And then, as you say, you've got to think of all the worst-case scenarios and you're like, oh, well. But I think up front it's always good to have an exit strategy. It's better than having to work out the exit strategy in the time of turmoil. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I remember a while ago, Katie, because I asked about how you, how you all communicated, so whether that was through meetings or any technology, and she mentioned that you were using WhatsApp at the time to just connect with each other. Does that still happen or how, how do you guys communicate now? We use yeah. Slack rather than WhatsApp. Or maybe she said Slack. It was a few years ago. Anywhere between a nightmare and you want to throw your phone in the dam. <laughs> Because it's going off 5,000 times. (laughs) But it is also incredibly good for sorting different communication streams and being able to check back at what people said and not being too overloaded with just this constant scroll of information. Yeah. And do you have regular meetings or how does that work? Yeah, we have anywhere from fortnightly to monthly meetings depending on the season and how busy everyone is. Yeah, and we sort of rotate the roles with that in terms of chair and minutes and just to keep it fair and so everyone gets a chance and we have a real structure to those meetings as well. So I think we've, we've developed that over time as we've needed to, but trying to keep the, the meetings to a minimum just because we're all pretty flat out trying to do the daily work. Oh, wouldn't we all love that? The secret to a short meeting, I think, is the secret to success in life. <laughs> it's also really hard to balance, though, because often when you try and shorten a meeting, you cut out all the nice stuff that makes it a pleasant ex- And I think that's one thing we've learnt is that we, you can't, if all the interactions you have are the negative interactions, like having meetings about why wasn't this done or this needs doing, then the actual personal relationships are put under a lot more pressure whereas if you value the hanging out in nice time as much it's much easier to have good relationships I think yeah those are often the first things that get cut because you're like I don't have time to have morning 
day. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it funny? But you're totally right. If you add the relational aspect in and make it more, you know, the relationship as well as the transaction, and not just the transaction of ticking the boxes, it does change the dynamic and make a big difference. Do Do you guys have a lot of informal catch ups or share meals getting- or anything like that? I think we're getting better at it. I think we've realised how important it is. And there was a period there where we weren't doing that, but we're now having a shared morning tea every week. So that's a a time slot where we all try as much as we can to carve out a bit of time to sit together and have a cup of tea. And we're we're now talking about having shared meal more frequently as well. And I think think it's a really important aspect and it's really easy to fall off the agenda too, is, is celebration, taking time to celebrate what we're doing and focus on the positives. And that's one thing we do during our meetings is we always do a business check-in. So it's a chance to go around the circle and hear from each other because even though we're farming side by side, we often don't know the nitty-gritty of what's happening for each other in any um, given month. So that's a really nice thing that we do just to sort of have a chance to say this is what is going on for us in our business and these are the things we're doing at this time. And then it also provides an opportunity to to cross-reference and find links and ways that we can work together when you understand better what the other businesses and people are doing. We were incredibly lucky this last 18 months with COVID in, you know, working on the farm outside. The impact it had on us was a lot less than other people, but I think that probably was the biggest impact it had on the co-op was we all scattered. Like as soon as lockdown happened, we all sort of started having meals on our own and not those just general cat crossovers completely disappeared and I think they did take a toll in a way I think after six months of not having breakfast together there was a bit more separation between us so we've had to kind of come back to that spending more time together I think society in general (laughs) you know it's 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 really I know for me you know just a month or two ago I had my first face-to-face meeting and it was just delightful like I gave the person a big hug just because (laughs) I was like it's so nice to actually connect with a human again face-to-face I didn't realize how much I'd missed that connection so I think Mm. for a lot of us it'd be like that If there's other new and young farmers who want to do something similar to to what you've both done, what's the best advice that you could offer them? Mine would be get creative. As Australians, we're very set on this idea that if I can't own land and I can't do it exactly the way I want to do it, then I'm not going to do it. You have a lot of opportunities because of that. That sometimes it's better for things to not be perfect, but you're doing it and other things will come out of it. And that might mean farming on someone's land that maybe you do have to move in the future. But I think we just need to be a little bit more flexible because the that dream of owning, buying a farm and making a living off it, it's not a realistic dream at the moment in Australia. So, But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't just start and get out there and do it. And you might find that it's even better doing it in a creative way with other people. Yeah, love it. Think out, be prepared to think outside the box. Totally. A really important thing to always keep in mind is how important your community and your networks are. And I think for people, young people especially, who don't have land and who want to get into farming, it's so important to establish the relationships with the people around you and, and that's where the opportunities come from, I think, 
I think this opportunity for Mel and I to start gung-ho here on Katie and Hughes land, it only came about because we already had a really strong connection with them. We were no, known to each other and we, we existed within the same community and had strong connections and shared connections within that community. And I think if we were just strangers rocking up out of nowhere and saying, hey, how about you lease us some land, that it would be a really different story. Putting in the time to connections and community wherever you're choosing to grow is really important. And that's, that's a sustenance as you go forward as well in the hard times when you help each other out. And especially in farming, I think there's a, the networks and the community are so important. I think that yeah. would be my advice is get to know the people around you who are doing similar things. And if you do want to lease land off someone, then put the time into the, the relationship and the connection with those people. Yeah, I think both pieces of advice are, are really great and that's things that we've seen as well, the importance of connection, people and community, but also giving it a go and be willing to look at business models that are a bit different to the traditional model and um, that commitment to go for it. I'm interested to know that if you have a vision for the future of your business and what that might look like. I know, Tess, you said this was sort of you saw this as a stepping stone. Well, I hope that... Until I can't stand anymore, I'm still milking cows, (laughs) selling milk, because it makes me very happy. My dream would always be to end up living on the land that I'm farming, because to me, that's one of the benefits of farming is that kind of work-life integration. And because I'm currently commuting and not living on farm, that's the big downside of my operation currently, is that's a lot of time that I spend in the car and a lot of time that I spend up here because it's not worth going home and a lot of time you know it's very split how far are you from from the farm? i'm 25 minutes drive from the farm I, I have a relief milker one morning a week but otherwise pretty much up here in daylight hours yeah so that that would be my dream is to end up being able to be on the land that i farm but still doing it for me What's really important is the passing on of knowledge. And so last year we had our first intern and that's been a really great experience and we're, we're going to continue to have interns. And I think for me that's what I find really ex- exciting is that, you know, we never started this business wanting to be the only vegetable producer in the region. We started this business in the hope that others would follow suit because there's no way we can possibly grow enough veggies to meet the demand in this area. So... So growing the growers and and putting the time into helping build the skills of other passionate young people that, that want to grow food in this area, I think that's that's a real focus for me. And also, yeah, just the collaboration around education. So, you know, having schools come out here and we do have that happen from time to time and we also have, you know, sometimes young people with special needs or different things and just being able to share our passion for growing and and witness the healing power of having your hands in the soil is really quite profound. And, yeah, I'd like to see more of that happen because I think especially with COVID and with all sorts of different things affecting our society at the moment, just just having the opportunity to be outside and weeding with somebody side by side is is a really healing thing. And, yeah, there's a lot of of opportunity for weeding. (laughs) You'll be encouraging that one as much as possible. (laughs) The healing powers of weeding, let us help you, help us. No, but it's, um, yeah, I totally hear you. I mean, obviously we come an education institution fundamentally at heart at the uni. I used to be a teacher myself, the power of education. Yeah, and collaboration. I think that's something that really excites me too is we've got one collaboration happening at the moment with a local catering 
business run by Indigenous women and they use bush foods. And so we've started to grow some of the bush foods with and for them. And one of their young people comes out and is learning how to grow the bush foods as well. And just those sorts of collaborations and not seeing the business as its own sort of thing in and of itself, but how we can interact with other people and other organisations to, to support each other. I think I find that really exciting. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Love it. And look, this has been an absolute pleasure. I always finish asking one question. <laughs> what has surprised you the most about farming together? I do have moments like when I come down for morning tea and there's 10 people, there's, you know, Katie's dad, Katie and Hugh, all the business owners, all their volunteers, all their staff and I come down and there's this laughter and good food and I it's just it's an incredibly beautiful moment and it just makes me so grateful and happy and it, it's the thing that I just hadn't factored into farming farming together I don't think you could put any value on that because it you walk away from those morning teas with so much more passion and energy and hope and Without that farm, I think farming can get, it can get a bit depressing at times and, and really hard and it's good to have those moments. Maybe what surprised and also inspired me is how we're all, we're all here every day on this beautiful piece of land but we're all looking at it from really different perspectives. You know, Tessa has a really wide-angle view because she's, she's looking at the property as, as a whole and every little nook and cranny that she can move her cows around and, and graze on, whereas Mel and I are really, you know, honed in on our little acre and a half of veggies and we, we know that soil and every single row and metre squared by... You can almost tell the names of the worms and then, you know, Ant, who's been running the orchard, he's, you know, really specifically zoned in on that. Thing. but when we come together we it forms like a whole picture of the land and it's I find that really inspiring to hear from each other what what we're noticing what we're seeing and how that kind of crosses over forms like a, a patchwork quilt of the land I guess but we're, we're all adding our little bits of information and you know the things that are inspiring us also what Tessa said just that we had our first three years of growing here was very solo it was just us in the veggies Katie and Hugh were doing their thing but you know, it was a very solo pursuit and I enjoy that, but I also really enjoy just the incidental interactions that we have, you know, hearing about what's going on with the cows or, you know, the latest escape each or whatever. It's just, yeah, those, those interactions that we have is what makes the day a lot more interesting and exciting to know that there's other people out there who are also doing the same thing you're doing in a different way, but with the same big heart. For more tools and resources to help you work collaboratively, head to farmingtogether.com.au or join the conversation on the Farming Together Program's Facebook page. You're listening to the Farming Together Podcast.